Will the Opportunity Zone initiative help accelerate the nation's transition to renewable energy? Find out why solar energy development and Opportunity Zone investing may be ideally suited for one another on today's episode. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Today I'm speaking with a technology investor, and former Republican candidate for governor of Oregon. He's the co-founder of the Obsidian Opportunity Fund, which specializes in renewable energy development. Alan Alley, thank you for chatting with me today and welcome to the show. Hey, Jimmy, it's good to be here. Absolutely. So, Alan, let's start at the beginning. Can you just give me your thoughts on the Opportunity Zone program, what it means to you, and why you decided to get involved? Sure. So... I've been a technology investor for many, many years, going back into the 1980s, actually. Invested in and and grown companies, so I've been involved in that for a long time. I have a friend uh, that is a co-investor in some of the deals that we do, uh, who was working in the solar area, doing solar development. And it was back just about a year ago when uh, the first Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed, And I was looking at it and I said, geez, this seems to have some characteristics that would be interesting for my friend that's a solar developer. So I sent him over a note and a link. And he, being a former tax attorney, wrote me a four-page memo back in about 24 hours uh, that is, uh, oh my gosh, Alan, this is perfect for what we do. And went into all the reasons of of why that, that is. So we started working about a year ago and have partnered up to create the Obsidian Opportunity Fund that's focused on applying opportunity fund investing to renewable energy, and our specialty is really solar power. Very good. And that that partner of yours, that's uh, David Brown, is that correct? David Brown, exactly. Very good. Uh, Before we dive into everything that you guys are doing, could you give me your personal background story briefly? How did you get to where you are today, and where did you get the passion for renewable energy? Where did that come from? Sure. So a mechanical engineer by training, worked at Ford and Boeing, designing parts for cars and airplanes, and then got into computer graphics. So I'm about the same age as somebody like uh, Bill Gates and was kind of experiencing the same things that he was experiencing throughout his career. Uh, Got into venture capital, was recruited by a Boston-based venture firm in the late 1980s, Battery Ventures, and started investing in high technology companies all over the all over the United States and had been developing a portfolio of those. One of my investments was in focus systems here in Oregon that we invested in and took public in the early 1990s. I came out and joined in focus. I had experience on the West Coast when I was a little kid from kindergarten through fifth grade was in Seattle. So I wanted to get back here from Boston. Joined in focus, helped grow that company, and then I started a semiconductor business that had a chip that went into flat panel displays that we identified that flat panel displays of all types were going to replace CRTs. 
and developed a technology to help enable that to happen. We started the company in 97. We were public in 2000. We sold about a billion dollars worth of semiconductors in our first 10 years in business. The company's still around today. And then from there, I got involved in uh, a little bit in politics, but going back to my roots of venture investing, I've been doing that privately now for the last 10 years or so. And uh, have been investing in Oregon, renewable energy, electric vehicles, uh, sort of technology in that space has always been an interest of mine. In fact, I I used to say that digging black stuff out of the ground and combusting it in the atmosphere is so crude, it's embarrassing as a mechanical engineer that that's the best that we can do. And I've been fascinated with alternative ways of producing power uh, that have less of a footprint on the environment and uh, got involved with my friend David in developing some of the solar projects that we're doing. Very good. So nowadays, I know you guys, you and David at Obsidian, are focused on renewable energy development in Opportunity Zones in particular. What is your overall Opportunity Zone fund investment strategy? Is it just utility-scale solar development at the moment, or are there any other asset classes in the mix? And which particular geographies are you investing in? Sure. So if you if you kind of look at it as a as a target, the center of the target would be probably solar in opportunity zones. And that's just because that's our background and our experience. If anybody has experience in developing renewable energy, they know it's extremely complicated to get it done. Managing all the different um, investment vehicles that go into it, but also managing the regulatory, uh, working with the utilities, the land use issues, all those things, it makes it a, a very complex investment to put together. And we have specific, and then you've got the technology piece of it as well. So we have specific capabilities there. But then if you start moving out from that center, things like uh, pump storage in a rural area or uh, wind in a rural area, or batteries connected with a, a solar panel system uh, would be something that we would do. Any kind of infrastructure, now I'm moving a little bit further out from that, any kind of infrastructure that would connect to the grid is something where we have expertise. And then we get into uh, developing properties in these rural communities. So. We have relationships with county commissioners and city councilors and in rural communities. And if they have a property, we can diligence those properties in those rural communities where other people might not go because we're there for a multi-hundred million dollar solar project. We can look at their million dollar building in a rural community that other people might not have an opportunity to do that. So we kind of look at it as, as concentric circles uh, with the center of it being our solar development. Gotcha. So let, let's back up for a moment, actually. I have a very basic question for you. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the ins and outs of solar development, and by the way, I'm one of them, admittedly, what what does what does a solar development project look like exactly? Uh, what does it entail? What all is involved? Can you, can you walk me through the, the steps of that? Sure. So let's start a, a, a basic solar development the things that you're going to look for is land, obviously. You need some of that. Located near 
power lines. So you you can't put solar panels that are a long distance away from from transmission of power because if you do, the cost of interconnect is so high it, it overwhelms the the project. So you ideally want to find the power lines in sunny places with uh, low cost available land that's developable. And those are some of the, the basic things that you need. And then you have to have an interconnect. You've got to be able to connect to those power lines. You have to be able to transmit that power to somebody who can purchase that power. You have to get through all the land use and regulatory issues of wetlands, uh, ancient artifacts that you might find on the land, uh, all kinds of issues that that you might not really consider um, otherwise. So it's a it's a fairly complex project. And then they tend to be tens of millions of dollars at the low end to hundreds of millions or even a billion dollars at the high end. Uh, so they're they're very large scale projects and they're in rural communities usually. So getting workforce out to those communities and, and that sort of thing is a is a challenge as well. But because we have background and experience in that area, we can either develop them ourselves or we can certainly do a good job of diligencing projects uh, that we would invest in. Gotcha. So you speak about rural communities. Where specifically are the rural communities that you're investing in? Are you entirely in Oregon? I'm looking at a map of, of Oregon and overlaid with its opportunity zones right now. Which which zones, which locations are you in in Oregon specifically? So we would do... We'll do anything in the United States. Mm -hmm. It tends to be in the sunny places, so it tends to be um, in the western United States, in the high deserts or south. Uh, In Oregon, it would be in the central part of the state or the southern part of the state. Lake County is a county that we do a lot of work in. But it could really be anywhere. There's, There's power transmission. One of the reasons why this works is there's power transmission from the uh, dams that are that tend to be up north here on the Columbia River uh, down to California. So there's a there's a corridor of transmission that pretty much makes it relatively easy or let's say possible to site these things in Oregon and in California and even in Washington and uh, get the power where you need it to go. Very good. So you mentioned that the first step is finding the available land. Uh, so how, how do you source your land deals? Do do landowners in these zones, in these opportunity zones specifically, come to you asking you to build solar or do you approach them? How does that work exactly? So one of the things, I'm new to the solar development business and one of the things that was kind of amazing to me is very little of the projects get built on federal or state land. And you'd be surprised uh, to go to some of these areas where, if you look in California, there's vast, what look like deserts, and there's no panels on the deserts. And then right next to it is irrigated land, and there's panels on the irrigated land. But it turns out that it's easier to work with private individuals to uh, lease or purchase their land than it is the state. Or the federal government. So that's which, possible. That's possibly a missed opportunity there. Yeah, I, I think it's a missed opportunity, and I hope in the future the state and the federal governments kind of figure it out. They're promoting these policies, uh, but it's very difficult to do development on uh, on that land. So largely, it's it's private land that we're uh, that we're developing on. 
And and who who comes to whom? Do you go to the landowners, or or will a landowner who's interested in in solar development come to you, or how does that work? I would say generally we go to the landowners. Now, if there's been projects that have been developed in a community and the projects have been good for both the project and the community, then people might approach you. Uh, the the problem one of the the problems is you have to aggregate land from. Uh, several or many landowners, so it isn't you know one one guy with you know a hundred acres that probably isn't going to do it. You you're you're more biased to make sure that the the land is near the power lines. So you you really want the the, the land that's near the power lines. So it's fairly limited. About where the valuable properties are uh, for doing this, it's it's very much based on how close to the power transmission you can get. That's understandable. And what's the compensation model there? Are you are you leasing the land from the landowners, or are you providing them with some of the revenues from the from the power that you develop that you produce? Or? Sure. So if you if you lease the land in, in indirectly, you're providing the revenue from the power because if you didn't have the power, you couldn't lease the land. So in some cases, you're leasing the land. In some cases, you're purchasing the land. It, it's it's not a hard and fast rule. It is, I would say, dramatically more lucrative to put panels on the land than it is to use it for the the use that it currently is being used for. And in most cases, that's high desert grazing. It's not generally this, the land that we're using is not cultivated. It's, it's, um, it, you know, it's high desert. So the, a landowner can make a lot more money putting panels on it than they can any other way. Very good. So I'd like to talk about how you're funding these projects and and how you're how you're raising money for your opportunity zone fund who is your capital base are, are you hearing from high net worth individuals or corporations family offices who are you receiving interest from exactly i would say given the i'll call it unique nature of the product that we've come up with and that's the financial product that we've come up with it tends to be uh, people with what I call patient money, meaning you can invest the money, you don't need current income, uh, and 10 years from now, you can generate a return off that, and, and that's a model that, that is sustainable for you. So that tends to be family offices. It tends to be individuals that have had sort of that once-in-a-lifetime liquidation event where you know, somebody sold their company and they have more cash than they ever thought they needed. And putting that cash away and preserving that and growing that cash over time with the tax advantages of an opportunity fund, uh, an opportunity zone investment is attractive for them. So that tends, we, you know, you can summarize it by saying, well, folks with patient equity capital are the folks that are interested in what we're doing. Yeah, and that does tend to uh, be family offices and or individuals with, with those uh, big liquidity events like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. 
before our call, you sent over the Obsidian Opportunity Fund Investor Summary. It's a little PDF that I'll have linked in the show notes uh, for listeners out there. But it, one part of it discusses your preferred equity model. For, right. for potential investors listening, can you describe your preferred equity model and how it differs from the goals of current income-focused investors? Sure. So solar investors tend, historically, tended to be current income investors, that you could, you could finance half the project with debt, and because you have a contract to sell the power, and because sunlight tends to be the same year after year after year after year, there's a very small variance in the areas where we have these projects that it's it's more of a cash flow business. So investors invest and they want cash flow. When we looked at this, frankly, we looked at it kind of the same way. And we were trying to figure out how do we get cash flow? How do we get our piece of the cash flow for our investors? And we stopped all of a sudden and looked at each other and said, wait a minute, the maximum advantage is for patient capital. It's put the money in in year one and take it out with appreciation in year 10. That's the way opportunity funds, opportunity zones, that's the way the law is created, that any kind of current income that you get is going to be taxed at your normal tax rates. So we say, well, what if we architected something where you put your money in and it just sits? And then in year 10, it comes out. And we started to talk to people in the industry. We looked at it ourselves. And it turns out it's a really, really interesting thing because everybody else wants current income. So we're able to go in on a $100 million project and say, well, we'll put in 20 and that 20 will just sit there for 10 years, and then it comes out at the end in terms of equity. Everybody else has been paid out because they're all current income investors, and they're generally paid out uh, almost exclusively within that 10-year period. And then what we do is we end up owning the facility, basically. We own the panels after 10 years. In some cases, there's still... 5, 10, even 15 years left on your purchase agreement, your power purchase agreement. So there's a net present value of the cash flow that you can easily calculate what that ownership is worth. In some cases, you might be flipping to market rates, and then we'd have to sell the power at market rates. So what we do is we put together a portfolio of those investments. Some of them have long power purchase agreements. Some of them are at market rates. But the, the balance of that portfolio is what we put together for our investors. And we believe that, uh, generally speaking, we're going we're gonna to get about two times on your investment. It might be a little bit more than that. It might be a little bit less. But generally speaking, that's our, that's our target hurdle rate for our investments, which is a 7.2% compound over that 10-year period, and it's tax-free. So for patient uh, investors, that that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good model. It's a pretty good opportunity, you might say. Pun intended. Yes, we, tr <laughs> we try not to say opportunity a hundred thousand times when we're when we're talking to somebody like this. But yes, it's a great opportunity. It's it's hard to avoid sometimes. So it, it is, is it is a rather illiquid investment, which is why you mm -hmm. really do need patient capital. So, uh, you know, your investors aren't going to need the money back for, for a decade or so. At the end of the 10 years, 
you own the panels and you can calculate the value based on the net present value of, of, of future cash flows. What what happens then at, at year 10 and beyond? Are you just, are you happy to, are you content to collect the cash flow coming in? At, or at, I mean, at a certain point you need to exit. Um, yeah. What's your exit strategy? I would say most of the time uh, you're going to be selling it to the counterparty that has the power purchase agreement. So you can look at a 15-year power purchase agreement at this rate and the counterparty can give you a discounted future value and flip it back into what they pay for it and they just buy it from you. It's just a, a really simple mathematical calculation. And those will almost certainly yield more than two times on our money. We architect them that way because we we can do that math today. I mean, if you think about it, um, in the real estate analogy, it's like we have a building that's fully leased for 25 years at a known rate. And that's kind of a remarkable asset. And that's, that's exactly what we've got as, you know, we have a building that was a 10 or a hundred million dollar building and it's leased with a great counterparty um, for a long period of time. So that's very fungible. So we're not, we're not too concerned about that. Uh, in some cases, it might be so lucrative that we just take the cash flow and we'll deal with writing up the investment, giving the investors their, uh, their write-up on their basis at that point in time. But we think most of the time we'll be flipping them and selling them to the counterparties. Very good. That sounds like a pretty good, pretty good deal structure you have in place there. So, Alan, I, I know that uh, panel prices have plummeted and installations have skyrocketed with regards to solar installations uh, over the last decade or more. Can you give me the high-level overview of solar development? Where, where are we at with solar power technology? And what do you expect to see over the next decade or so, you know, while while you're waiting out those 10 years? Well, I'm kind of the, the new guy to this uh, area. David has been doing the solar development for the last five or six years. But my background is in technology. And, yes, panel prices have come down. Efficiencies of the panels have gone up. There hasn't been any sort of discontinuous increase where – you know, it, it goes from 20% efficient to 40% efficient or something like that. It's been kind of a methodical increase of a half a percent or a percent here and there. Uh, we expect to see that continue. I don't see panel prices being too volatile down or up. We think that's, a, that's pretty steady. Uh, the cost of all of the interconnect and, you know, that sort of thing that's Pretty straightforward. Um, a lot of it is is based on the cost of the raw materials, the copper and the aluminum. Inverter technology has gotten slowly better, but they're they're very very efficient. That's what trans uh, translates the power from uh, DC to AC. We transmit the power in AC. So from a technology standpoint, I think it's pretty stable. Lifetime of the panels seems to be. Um, right around, around 25 years, they decay a few percent a year, but that's that's something that you model, and that's been very consistent. So I don't see a big technology risk here as opposed to some other investments that I've done. I think 
the really interesting thing in this area is going to be battery technology and how batteries affect this. That basically, once you can add batteries to the panels, now you can transmit power in the evening as well. And you can overbuild the uh, facility. So if you have a, you know, a 50 megawatt facility and you have contracts for 50 megawatts during the, the peak hours, if you can overbuild that and store 50 megawatts and deliver that at night, you now have basically a, a giant battery, you know, that, that can transmit the power during the day and then you can transmit what you've got um, at night. So solar facilities then can be used like natural gas peaking facilities that that you can you can actually dispatch the power based on demand, not on power generation. And I think that's going to make uh, things much more valuable. And batteries are right at that tipping point right now where uh, they're just about at the point where I think you're going to see broad deployment of batteries. And once you have that, renewable energy pretty much just overwhelms anything else. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I, You answered my next question. I was going to ask you about energy storage and how far away we were from getting that to that point. So so yeah. we're, we're pretty close. Other, Go ahead. There's other technologies like pump storage and that sort of thing where you can pump water, store it, and then run it through a turbine. Mm -hmm. um, dealing with water out here in the West is always fraught with with issues the land use issues are are difficult enough you add water on top of that I, I that's problematic not just extracting the water but then changing the temperature of the water reintroducing water at a different temperature than what it was before you know as a technology guy i, I think batteries are actually going to uh, to be the thing that that uh, will solve the the problem i think the the manufacturing muscle of batteries used for not only uh, utility scale storage, but all the automobiles and things that are going to be uh, battery powered, battery stored, energy stored, um, is going to overwhelm all that. I, I'd say, you know, it's it's 10 to 20 years where you're going to see that happen. It could happen. You'll start to see it in the next five, six years, but over 10 to 20 years, it will absolutely happen. Yeah, we're already starting to see it a little bit, but yeah, you're right. The the batteries are still, I think, a little bit too expensive. Correct me if I'm wrong, but but yeah. the prices certainly are coming down, and the and the technology is getting better. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen it in the solar panels. I saw it in flat panel displays when when I started in the flat panel display business. A hundred dollars an inch was sort of this unbelievable goal that if we could get to a hundred dollars an inch, that would be amazing. So you're 42-inch television set would be $4,200, right. <laughs> which which is now $400 or less, 289 on Black Friday or something like that. Something I mean, like that, yeah. Yeah, and it was just manufacturing muscle. It's nothing, but it's not like somebody invented some magic technology to make it cheaper. It's that you get the manufacturing guys on it and the glass gets thinner and the panels get larger and the coatings get more uniform and throughput gets higher and they just beat on it until um, it's just brute force manufacturing efficiency that does it. And I think the same thing's going to happen in batteries. Yeah, I think you're right. We're seeing the same thing in, in batteries right now. Overall, 
why invest in solar? Can you give me the business case beyond merely the the opportunity zone tax incentive, but the underlying investment itself? And I think maybe we've touched upon this already a little bit, but uh, sure. can go into a little bit further? So this sort of loops into uh, the opportunity zone investment. There, it, we see them as kind of hand in glove. So opportunity zones, when we saw it, it's like, wow, this is the first time we've seen the government prescribe something in very high level terms where there's unrealized gains that are locked up as ones and zeros on computer screens, that if you realize those gains and actually turn them into U.S. dollars and then create a bias for those dollars to flow to certain zones in the United States that are generally lower income zones, will there be a macro benefit to that without being very prescriptive about how you do it, what industries do you invest in? We applauded that move and thought that was a that was a great thing to do, that you take a lot of friction out of the system and you're basically letting the free market decide where that money should go. Um, and we actually altruistically said, look, we're already in these rural communities. This is a great thing for these rural communities. Let's figure out a way to, to help make this happen. The other thing is, is that because we believe we're doing exactly what the intent of the law was, a lot of other people are very hung up about, oh my gosh, you know, we got to get this rule or this regulation or the IRS has to be crystal clear on this or Treasury needs to rule on this. From our standpoint, look, as long as you're going right down the middle of the road, you don't care what's happening at the edges. And we're going right down the middle of the road. These are fixed assets. They're absolutely in opportunity zones. They absolutely are equity investments that we're making. We take the equity risk uh, with those investments. It is kind of pure vanilla opportunity zone investing. It also happens to be uh, solar energy, which we've had a, a lot of people be very interested in us because of the double bottom line or triple bottom line advantages to that, especially patient capital likes that. Um, the counterparties are great counterparties. So we think it just fits perfectly with exactly what the intent of the law was. And that's it, it's kind of this self-reinforcing loop of why do you do solar in opportunity zones? Well, it all kind of reinforces itself and just enhances the investment for those that participate with us. Right. So why... Well, what is the case for solar in a rural community as opposed to in an urban community? This is utility scale solar. So it's all going to the grid and it's most of it goes to uh, urban. Um, it's, it's the power is actually used in urban centers. Solar is down to being competitive with any form of uh, power production and we think it's it's the best form. So coal, gas, nuclear, anything that you want, solar's right down now to basically parity, cost parity. And it really depends upon who's doing the analysis. I think if you're a, if you're a coal supporter, you can probably 
um, make coal look a little bit less expensive. If you're a renewable supporter, you can probably make the renewables less expensive, but it's not 2x or 3x or 5x the cost anymore. And I, you know, again, as a technology guy, I've seen this trend happen over and over and over again. We've reached the tipping point where uh, renewables, and specifically, uh, we believe solar, are, are going to just continue to grow. I mentioned that uh, the solar panels, the yearly fluctuation on sunlight in the areas that we're putting them in is very small, just a couple of percent, uh, very different than wind. Wind is much more unpredictable about month-to-month, week-to-week variations in wind. Good and low-cost and another candidate for battery backup, but uh, that baseline of power that solar can deliver on a very predictable basis uh, gives us a huge advantage. Very good. Well, I I exposed a... uh... A, uh, a misconception that I had about about your projects. You're you're building grid scale solar panels, so you're not only delivering to the rural areas. You're delivering uh, right. throughout the state, throughout the country. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely going to the urban communities as well. Sorry for that yeah. misunderstanding I had there. Yeah, you can think of them as power plants. I mean, they are yes. power plants, right? Yes, exactly. So it's like a coal or or a gas power plant that just happens to be located in a in a rural community and has much less of an environmental footprint than one of those other plants. Right. And the only the only reason why we don't have more of these is that we're only just starting now to reach grid cost parity. And over the years, as the price continues to come down, solar will only begin to make more and more sense as opposed to the traditional fossil fuels. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And in fact, you know, if you think about it, you... <laughs> If I told you, hey, I can produce power by sticking a large piece of glass in the sunlight and electrons come out the other end Mm -hmm. and we can have basically as much of it as we want. And once you've paid for the panels, it's sort of free. We have we will have ubiquitous, low cost, CO2 free power available. The power problem is going to be solved. Even with electric vehicles coming onto the grid, there's no there's no question it's going to be solved. If you're a technologist like I am and and you've seen these trends before, you can you can see that point. It, there's no question that we're going to get there. So I, I think I'll, and a guy that spent some time in the government as well, we are we are myopically looking at where we are at this instant in time and. And in many cases, making regulations that go out in time without kind of looking up. We're, we're doing a lot of things by staring at our feet rather than looking ahead. That's in transportation. That's in, in energy. But you can absolutely see where we're going to have ubiquitous, CO2-free, cheap energy available, at least in the United States, for sure. Yeah, within the next couple of decades. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, I- and on a... On a government planning time horizon, a couple of decades is like a couple of years for an individual. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty quick, right? Right. Um, so you mentioned the IRS guidelines. Uh, you, you are not waiting on any further clarification. Is is that right? Or you're just you're good to go because you're you're just going right down the middle. It's a it's a plain vanilla investment, as you, as you said. Is that right? Yeah, we we are. Um, there's there's some questions about some 
tax treatments for certain types of gains. Um, but I don't think that's going to just make somebody's decision, at least the people that we talk to, about whether they do or they don't invest. Uh, there's no risk that, you know, our projects are right down the middle of the road. So it isn't like the IRS is going to flip back and say, you know, uh, plant and equipment, 100% of which is located within an opportunity zone is somehow going to be disqualified. It isn't like the stuff can move. Right. It isn't like doing an investment in a company and then the company gets merged with another company that's not in an opportunity zone and what happens with that. It's 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 solar panels in an opportunity zone connected to the grid doing exactly what the law intended them to do. So, uh, yes, we're up and running. We're taking investments right now. Uh, we have three projects right now, I think, that can absorb up to about $50 million of opportunity fund investment. The projects themselves are, are much bigger than that, but there's a certain equity slice that we participate in, and we're taking investments for that right now. Right. You said you, you typically participate in roughly 20% of the yeah, total that's investment? Yeah, that's about where it, Ballpark. it is, about 20% of the stack, right? Very good. Uh, and, and what other projects do you have on the horizon? Are you, are you looking to get involved in more projects beyond the three yeah, that you're have, in today? Yeah, we have line of sight to, I'd say, 100 or 200 million over the next 12 to 18 months. And then a little further out, we have a project, one large project that could consume 200 million by itself. So we think over the next three years or so, five years, uh, we'll be 500 million to even a billion dollars worth of opportunity zone investments in these types of projects. Good. So do you anticipate your fund will remain open to investors over that yeah. time period for the next five years or so? Yeah, it has to. Uh, you know, part of the service that, that we provide as fund managers is syncing up uh, capital gains that have to occur in a certain window of 180 days with deployment of capital that has to occur within certain parameters of of the, uh, the law as well, because they want to make sure that we're not just sitting there holding that money. So we have sort of rolling funds that we will close based on that timing. So um, we've got to make sure that we have the capital deployed, and that's why we need a, a pipeline of projects. And we will open and close those funds and include or, or um, separate out, put into a different project, some of the projects that we've got in order to make all of that sync up. And that's really our responsibility as fund managers. And it would be difficult for an individual to do that, really difficult. Very good. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, I know there's a lot of, or there are a lot of uh, incentives for renewable energy development, for solar development. Uh, are are some of those beginning to phase out? And is and do you kind of see Opportunity Zone as as being a way to bridge the gap until the cost really comes down a lot further? Yes, they are phasing out, and we think Opportunity Zones will be a way to help bridge that. We still think that. We're nearing a tipping point now where the solar, the solar developments and the, the ability to produce power is pretty much at parity without the subsidies anymore. It depends upon who's doing the math, you know, which outcome you want to have. But like I said, 
you're not going to come out with two or three X uh, the way you used to uh, for solar. It's, it's approaching parity. And we think opportunity funds with professional fund managers, well-diligenced projects, not every project is going to pencil. Not every project is created equal. Not every project has all the right counterparties and the power purchase agreements and all the land use things in place. But that's something that we've done and we can help diligence so that we'll have a, a great portfolio of projects that can yield the kind of returns that our investors need. Well, Alan, we're getting toward the end of our time here today, but I wanted to ask you a couple questions just to wrap things up. For you personally, looking back over your career, what's been the most memorable investment that you've made? Is there anything in particular that stands out? Wow. I've been fortunate enough to participate in a lot of different industries. So computer graphics, uh, I think, you know, it probably has to be the development of flat panel displays because that was one that we were there at the very, very beginning of. I worked for a company that did some really innovative research into liquid crystal technology that was in focus. And to see something at that embryonic stage and to see some of the very first flat panel displays that were thousands and thousands of dollars for a 10-inch display and to work with people to, you know, in our, in our way, help create that transition with a little intellectual property that we had. And to see it today, I mean, you almost can't find a cathode ray tube anymore. I mean, they, they just don't exist, right? Right. That was really remarkable. And I've been around in, you know, we were evaluating investments in cell phone technology, the first analog cell phones that came out, and we actually passed on that one. We passed on Dell Computer because it was a guy selling computers out of his dorm room, and we thought that was about the dumbest thing we'd ever heard. <laughs> uh, the uh, You know, I've seen lots and lots and lots of technologies, and I remember sitting around and, gosh, it was like 1987 or something in Boston, staring at each other going, what are we going to do? Everything's been invented. You know, the, the PC's been invented. Um, somebody came in and was pitching us on networking. And we said, and I remember one of the partners saying, uh, it's called a personal computer because it's my computer. If I want to network with somebody, I, I buy a terminal that's hooked up to a mainframe computer. Why would I ever want to network these personal computers? So, yeah, I've seen a lot of, of waves. And that's why I, I think I can speak with some background and experience in identifying technology waves and seeing the trends and helping to navigate through that. And I think that's why it's valuable in the, in the work that we're doing with solar is this is just another one of those waves that I've seen many, many times. And I have a pretty good feel for how it's going to evolve. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, put like that, this is just another technology wave. And you certainly do have a lot of experience with those over the over the years. Alan, what about uh, your political ambitions? Possibly a future run for governor in the works? Maybe, I think, 2022 for Oregon? Yeah. I don't. I'm still involved politically. And uh, it's something that I think is really, really important. I'm sort of doing my politics through through the investments that we're doing right now. I think creating great investments and creating great opportunities and helping our uh, 
our moving to a more sustainable energy profile is really important and how I can contribute now. I'll always be a voice. I've the experience that I've gained over time and the investment that people have made both monetarily and, and in educating me, I'm I'm still paying that back. I'm I feel a great debt and sense of responsibility for those investments that folks have made. And I don't just mean dollars. I mean they've educated me on water issues and land use issues and transportation issues and and things like that. So being part of the economy here and trying to do good things and and trying to be a voice uh, and bringing that technology background and perspective to it, whether it's autonomous vehicles or solar panels, I think is a is a really important thing. But I don't see me running for for uh, any office. All right, I had to ask. I was curious. You doing yeah. uh, doing doing good work through uh, through the private sector? Yeah. No. I, and this is my roots. I mean, this is what I've done for my whole life. I took a little 10 year detour into uh, politics to understand it. And it was a great eye opening experience and incredibly valuable. And I probably wouldn't be doing the opportunity fund um, investing if I hadn't done that. I just wouldn't have visibility to it. But, and I think it adds to, uh, to our background for our fund in the energy world, politics, state laws, federal laws, it's all very intertwined and, and understanding how to navigate that uh, process that both I and my, my partner, David, have uh, is, is very, very valuable. And it's an asset both to the communities we work in and our investors. Good. Well, Alan, I'm going to wrap it up here. But before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and, and your Opportunity Zone Fund? Do you have a website you can direct yeah, them to? Yeah, so the, uh, the best place to go to start is the website. It's Obsidian Opportunity Fund. Dot com just all spelled out in one long string and there's there's links in there to one of the things that I, I think is interesting is we've we've uploaded the opportunity zones to Google Maps uh, most of the other places you go it's not integrated with Google Maps so if you're looking for you know sort of points of interest it's very hard to determine whether those points of interest are in or out. Uh, we don't have every state yet. We will, but it's one of the uh, the things that we've got. And they're, they're just up there. People can reference them. And you can contact us through that website. You can contact me or my partner, David, and we'll get back to you and talk about what we can do. Excellent. Excellent. So for my listeners out there, I'll have the links to all of the resources that Alan and I discussed in the show notes for this episode. And you can find those show notes on the Opportunity Database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And I'll link to the Obsidian Opportunity Fund website. And I'll also have links to the Obsidian Opportunity Fund investor summary and their Google map that they're using. Alan, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate having you on the show and I hope to talk to you again soon. Jimmy, thanks. And thanks for your leadership on this issue. Uh, done a very, very good job. And the podcasts are well worth listening to. Awesome. Thanks for the endorsement, Alan. Uh, I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. 
You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.